Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicur Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur, and today I am so honored and pleased to be able to bring on the show a woman that I met several years ago at a coaching event. And when we met, there was this really cool connection that was formed, and we have stayed in touch over the years. And when I started this podcast, I thought, oh my gosh, she's going to be a great person to bring on. Nafshin Luhar is a photographer, artist, and speaker who transforms adversity into art. After a traumatic childhood that led to years of low self-esteem, weight issues, and body image issues, and then developing an incurable endocrine disorder, in September of 2016, she was diagnosed with endometrial cancer. That would be enough to stop pretty much anyone from moving forward, but Nafshin is an extraordinarily strong woman who realized that all that she had been through was a blessing and not a hardship. She recognized that some of the most extraordinary people she had met were those like herself who had been through unimaginable pain and had come out on the other side much stronger and more alive. That's when she realized what she's actually here on the planet to do, to transform adversity in art one story at a time. She says that we all have the ability to take everything ugly that has happened to us and change it into something positive. Through her speaking, photography, and paintings, Nafshin shows how our struggles get us to our victories, and she is a living inspiration to everyone she meets, proving that we all have the ability to take everything ugly and turn it into something awesome. So welcome to the podcast, Nafshin. Thank you so much for having me here, Cynthia. I'm so honored to be here with you and to be a part of this amazing podcast that you've started. Well, thank you. I'm so excited that we managed to get connected and make this happen. Absolutely. So I like to start with some quick and easy questions before we dive into the nitty gritty stuff. Are you ready? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. If you were an element like fire or water, one of those elements, what would you be? Oh, gosh, that's a challenging question. Normally, I'm a water sign, so I would say water and that I, you know, generally want to go with the flow. But I feel like I have a fire inside me to just change my life and help other people change theirs. So I would currently resonate more with the fire element. Okay, cool. What is the most unusual thing you have ever created? I feel like the relationships I create are very unique because I can be friends with someone who is five and I can be friends with someone who is 75 and I can resonate with all of those people at the same level. It's just, I feel like my ability to connect with people on every level is is a unique gift that I have. Ooh, I like where that went. Okay. Like my heart just started pounding when you were saying that. So (laughs) got to take a breath here. Okay. What is the biggest risk you've ever taken? The biggest risk I've ever taken is quitting my job to follow my passion with only three months of state savings. And three years later, I'm still here, you know, with food, home and shelter. So I think I made the right decision. Oh, yeah. 
What was the job that you left? I worked a nine to five job at Apple being a senior advisor for the iOS software on iPhones. Oh, my. Wow. I didn't know you were a fellow Apple person. I, I worked there way back in the... You did? Yeah, I did. I managed the information system security program there in um, development network security and gave security input into product development and all that type of thing. But that was a long time ago. I think I, I know. Yeah, I think that was like the late 80s, early 90s. And I left that in 96. So way before you were there, I'll bet you. Way before I was even in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I can't wait to can't wait to hear about that part of the story. Let's wrap up these little quickie questions and then we'll dive right into that. What is your favorite self-care practice? My favorite self-care practice is journaling. I like to just write down all my feelings at the end of the day, have gratitude for who I am as a person, uh, what I have to offer to the world, gratitude to my body, everything that I have in my life. Sometimes I fall on and off doing the self-care practice, but I think that's, you know, natural for all of us when life hits. But other than that, I really love to take care of myself and my body with what I feed it and how physically active I am. Okay, cool. So what advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your late teens, early 20s? The biggest piece of advice or the most profound piece of advice that I could give to young women today is not comparing yourself to anybody. Because I grew up with being compared to everybody, my siblings and other people in my age group, being told this person is doing this, how come you aren't? Or your sisters are so smart in school. How come you aren't? And no matter what anybody says, I feel like you are your individual person. You have your own individual gift to offer to the world. No one is like you and you don't really want to be like anyone else anyway. So to all the young women out there, just really embrace your own authenticity, whether you feel you may be imperfect or perfect in some ways. In your own way, you are perfect. So you're not like anybody else and nobody else is like you. So just do not compare because that is debilitating and nobody needs to feel that way. That is really powerful advice and insight. And the fact that it comes from what your lived experience was just makes it that more powerful. It really has a, a ring of truth to it. I think many of us, even women my age, I mean, I'm 57. And that really resonates with me, too, because it's mm -hmm. really hard not to compare yourself to your peers and to what you see, quote, out there as being successful and valuable, especially if like that type of stuff doesn't actually feel like you. It's really difficult to do that. So I, I love that insight. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you so much. And I, and I just want to add, it's really difficult to get back to a place of self-worth when you're constantly being told that you have to be a certain way and you are not that certain way because you're not made to conform into that circle. So it's very hard to get yourself out of that space of not feeling worthy when you're constantly being compared or you are constantly comparing yourself to others. So if you just embrace that gift that you are your own person and everything that you do will come to you at the time it's supposed to come to you and you're meant to function in the world like your own unique self, it will break that 
that box that you put yourself into. And I say this because I work through this every day myself. So getting freedom from that is being aware of it. So as quicker as you can be aware of it, the freer you'll be. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure that as we dive into your story more, it'll be very clear exactly how you have worked with that issue throughout your life, really. Let's dive in, shall we? Yes, let's dive in. Okay. Well, I would really love for you to tell your story in whatever manner you want to tell it, how you would like to start maybe in your early days in your childhood, because you did not start your life living in Northern California. You started a world away and in a very different environment, a very different family environment. So how about starting there? And then I'll I'll just get out of the way and let you tell your story. Okay, thank you so much. So my story started, I was born and raised in Kenya in what seemed to be a very normal household in an Indian Muslim household, which was, you know, very culturally reserved. And there was a structure to the upbringing and I was raised to follow all the stereotypes of Indian Muslim women. And up until the age of four, I had a very normal childhood, you know, as a fun, bubbly child with like brown, silky hair and fair skin and big eyes. And I emanated loving energy and everybody was really happy to be around me. And But this is also the age that I um, lost some of my light, I guess, because from the age of four till the, by the age of 12, I was um, molested by two of my family members not living in my household. And um, I didn't tell anyone because I was told that it was out of love. And then once when I got aware of it, I was instilled with a lot of fear by them. And so I didn't say anything to anybody. I also have uh, two older siblings and we lived in an extended household with my uncle, his wife and my grandma. And so we had a pretty normal family dynamic, except that, you know, from that child was in me was damaged. And I, I carried all those things that happened to me in childhood into all aspects of my life moving forward from there. So I wasn't the brightest kid in school. I had a lot of attention issues. I couldn't focus on anything. I was a little bit disruptive in the classroom. I never brought in any grades. I was into the arts and, you know, language and arts and English. But as as far as bringing in grades, I, I just wasn't able to do that because I wasn't really able to focus on anything in school since my spirit had been damaged. And my self-esteem was really damaged from from that time because I started being compared to my sister's from a really young age because we all went to the same school and both my sisters are straight A students and we all had the same teachers and the same grades and everything. So all my teachers always also told me that your sisters are really smart. What happened to you? Like, what is wrong with you? Why can't you be smart? Why can't you bring in the grades? And my family members also always told me the same thing that you have two daughters that are so intelligent. What's wrong with the youngest one? So like my, my scarring of my self-esteem started at a really, really young age. And a lot of kids, when they go through molestation or any early childhood trauma, 
their body reacts in a way to protect themselves. And so my body reacted by gaining weight as a form of protection. And also being the youngest child, I was also very spoiled and loved by my parents. And over there, you know, it's not a country where we have access to any like substances or anything like that. So my only comfort was food. And so at a young age, every time I had a tantrum or anything, I was always given candy. So I knew that that was my form of comfort. And I would I would play that up. So if I was sad or anything, I would be given candy and that would help me feel better. So food became my drug of choice. And that's all that I knew. As I grew into my teenage years, you know, all teenagers have like the normal feelings of liking other boys and stuff in, in, in your school or class or anything like that. And, you know, I started to become aware of my body at this time. And I was made fun of a lot in school for my weight because I had significantly gained weight more than other people in the school. And obesity in, in Kenya is at that time was very unknown of. So I was kind of the only chubby kid in my own, own school. And the only thing I could do to be liked or accepted by people in school or have friends is to overcompensate for my weight in many different ways by buying lunch for all my friends, by using my pocket money for everybody else, by bringing gifts for everyone, by doing things for everybody else so that I would just be liked. And, and that worked. I became very popular in school and everybody loved me because I did everything for everyone. I would do my friends' homework and I would pay for all their meals. And, you know, that just became a form of me knowing that I to be accepted and to be loved, that this is what I have to do. I have to sacrifice myself. And um, that carried on um, my entire life. Even, even now, I do struggle with that in, in certain areas of my life and feel like, okay, I have to do this to be accepted because it's so deeply rooted and so deeply ingrained. But as I began to grow aware of my body later in my teenage years, I felt a lot of pain inside me from what had happened in childhood. And the way I put a stop to it was because I thought it was normal and it was out of love because I didn't know anything different. And Childhood molestation is never really talked about publicly anywhere in Kenya, or not on TV, nowhere. It's just never addressed. And especially in my culture, it's always put under the rug. Nobody wants to hear about it. Nobody wants to know about it. It's just very ignored. So one day, we used to get two channels in Kenya. One day I was watching Oprah, and it was about molestation. And this was when I was 12 years old. And this is when I realized that what was happening was wrong. So the two people that, you know, uh, affected me or hurt me or molested me, I started to keep my distance from them. And um, they realized that I now knew that it was wrong. So they instilled a lot of fear in me saying that, you know, this, that or the other would happen if you told anyone. So I didn't, I didn't tell anyone, but I just stayed very far away from them. However, I had to process the pain that was going on inside me and I couldn't say it to anybody and there's nothing I could do. So the only thing I did was I physically harmed my body. I used to cut my legs and I used to cut my arms and that gave me some kind of satisfaction and it was some form of survival for me because 
I had to be able to process the pain from within. And it was easier to feel the pain of an actual wound rather than the pain within. Because a person or a child or a, a growing teenager of that age doesn't really know how to process pain. So I used to, you know, sit in the bathroom and like, you know, uh, with a with a razor blade or any kind of sharp object, make scratches on my arms and my legs. And as as awful as it sounds, there was some sort of satisfaction in that, and it helped me survive. And the worst <laughs> pain that I can remember was when I had these wounds and I was in the shower, and the hot water would like go on on these places where I was hurt and it would burn so much and I would like wail and and you know thinking back I just feel like I was so alone and lost in that space in my life and um it makes me sad today to think about that child you know that growing young girl being in that space by herself but that's what I needed to do. And, you know, sometimes when I reflect back on that, I I see it as such a moment of, of strength because I went through that all by myself and I made it and I'm here today. So I, I continued to do that. I did it on my arms, on my legs, on my hands. And one day when we were having dinner, my dad noticed some scratches on my arms and he's like, what happened? And I got afraid and I didn't know how to say what happened. And we had a lot of cats at the at the time. We had a lot of pets in the house. So I said one of the cats scratched me. And then I realized that I'm not going to be able to keep lying about this. So I had to stop doing it. So I stopped. I stopped harming my body. And um, soon after that, you know, a couple years later, my dad passed. And um this was the time where like just everything came crashing down in my life because he was the the only man I kind of trusted. And I struggled through a lot of abandonment issues in childhood because um, being the youngest child, my my two older sisters, the oldest one before me is seven years older than me. And the two of them are closer in age than I am to either one of them. So because they were closer in age, they always got to do things together and I was always left behind. And there's this one incident where I um, was five years old and we were at the ocean and my parents thought I was with my sisters and my sisters thought I was with my parents and they forgot me at the ocean and I was just playing in the sand until the tide came in and it took me really far back and then it threw me back on the ocean. And then it took me back again and brought me back to the ocean. So I almost drowned and I was terrified. But there was there was not a single person at the ocean. So finally, I was able to, you know, run to the shore at some point and sit really far away from where the water was. And even though my parents were in the hotel room, in that same hotel where I was sitting, I was five. So I didn't know how to get to the room. So when my sisters came back to the hotel room at like 11 o'clock at night, my parents asked them, where's your sister? And my sister said, we thought, we thought she's with you guys. And so finally my dad came and he found me sitting on the shore about 1130 at night. So that was one of, you know, the really scary incidents in my life where I thought, you know, I just didn't matter. And there was many incidences where I was forgotten to be picked up from school because 
either my uncle was supposed to pick me up or my dad was supposed to pick me up and there was no communication between the two and they thought that one of the other got me like i was just sitting in school so there was no like cell phones or things at that time and we didn't even have a phone in our house so because of communication problems like i was just i was just overlooked so those you know things are really deeply rooted in me they still hurt although i'm trying to heal them on a daily basis um sometimes they they still come back at you because it's just so deeply ingrained in us and we just have to i keep telling myself i'm not i'm not what happened to me i am what i become because of what happened to me so that's a mantra in my mind that and my heart that i have to keep replaying and telling myself that you know you are not your circumstances or your situations you are you and what you take out of those things to become so when my father passed our life pretty much changed overnight we would have never moved to the us but my grandparents lived here from my mom's side and they sponsored me my mom and one of my sisters to move because my older sister she was already uh married and she had you know a life there in kenya so besides not really being accepted for my intelligence and my grades you know the standard of beauty in the indian culture is you're only beautiful if you're fair skinned and if you're of a healthy lower weight or if you're skinny and although i was fair skinned i was always told my whole life that until you lose weight you're never going to get married or you have such a pretty face but um i wish you would lose some weight or you know just things like wow you would be so beautiful if you were thin you know just, just those things they 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 don't really think about what they're saying when they say it or how how it affects you because it's such a small narrow window of what beauty should really be or what it is and those words are really really scarring when you are moving forward in life how old were you when you moved from kenya i was 18 so my dad passed when i was 18 and we moved 4 months after he passed wow that's a lot of upheaval in a short amount of time and, yes and where Go did ahead. you move to in the us so we moved to fremont and that's where my parents lived my parents and my aunt and it was me my mom and my sister so all three of us moved to fremont and we were there for a short period of time and you know living in kenya where you always think of like america as this really fascinating amazing place and you know you you read all these things about like weight loss products and everything and uh that it's going to help you and everything by the time i moved here and i was 18 i was about 270 pounds at that time which is quite significant for an 18 year old so you know like i thought that i was coming here to a space of like freedom and acceptance because of everybody is open here and accepting and like loving and kind and there's so many people here like me because I was so isolated there being overweight and you know I would be accepted here but i remember this really distinctly and as soon as i got off the plane and i got home to my family's house i was asked like this was the first day i'd gotten there i had just lost my dad like i, I hadn't even processed the fact that my dad had passed yet 
And the first question I was asked is, how did you gain all this weight? Or why did you gain all this weight? And I had no answer to that because it automatically made me feel shut down. Like I just came from a place where I'm not accepted to another place where I'm not accepted. And I'm in a family circle where the family itself is not accepting me. And I, I completely understand that everybody generally means well and they want you to take care of your health and, you know, do all these things for yourself because they worry about you. But at the same time, the way in which you are told things is, is so vital and important. I had one of my family members who, you know, is generally very caring and stuff, but she always gave me a diet book as a birthday present thinking that it was helpful, but I didn't see that as helpful. I felt that as very insulting and very, very, it's a clear, it was a clear sign for me that you are not accepted and you need to do this so that you can be accepted or like what you are doing in life is just completely not okay. So here's a book every year. I'm telling you for your birthday, you need to do this. And it's kind of like the worst birthday gift to give anybody. So I carried, you know, so much of that pain inside me for so long. But even when I came here, you know, my father was a very well-known man in the community and he helped like every single person that he came across with in life that needed help. Like if he knew somebody needed help, he would do anything under the sun to go and help that person. And that's what he taught us. If you know that somebody needs help, don't wait for them to ask you, just go and help them. And he got, you know, all of my cousins married in our house and he got like so many people who needed surgery. He raised funds for them. And, you know, because of the man he was and how much he gave to the community, there was about over a thousand people at his funeral. And most of them, we didn't even know who they were. It's just people who he helped with the walks of life. Wow. So a large part of me felt that I need to live in those footsteps and fill them. So whatever he did for my family, you know, when he was there, I felt like I need to redo all those things for everybody else. But I was always overlooking myself. I was always just, you know, depleting all my resources for everybody else around me, whether it was in family functions, gatherings, uh, college, friends, everything. It was just like, how much of myself can I give so that I am accepted? And so that I'm giving and fulfilling all the steps that I was taught by my father. So, you know, that's what I did for my family here. Even, even though some of them didn't treat me as fairly as, as, as I could have been treated or with kindness or compassion. And, you know, when, when you are not accepted in your body or, or for who you are by the people who you should be accepted by the most, like your immediate family, then it's really hard for you to accept yourself. So I just lived through these through these emotions my whole life and not knowing what self-love or self-acceptance or any of that was because I was completely oblivious to that and completely disconnected from my true self. I just lived for and existed for everybody else. I just existed. I didn't really even live. Then I was in college and the transition from America to here was very, very difficult. I wanted to go back every single day for the first six months of my life, every single day, because I missed my friends. 
I felt like I left my father behind because his grave was there and like it completely disconnected me from him and all my memories of him and you know because in this new place new country new environment I had no memories of him with me anywhere in this place so I was very angry that my family decided to bring me here and that we were leaving you know all of him behind and I, I felt like I was grieving my father's death for at least like 13 years after because I just didn't know how to process it. There was no way for me to process that. And from most, all of my siblings, I am the most like my father, which is what my mom tells me. It's like, you are just the most like him. The way I look, my habits, everything. So I felt like, you know, a part of me is, is missing. I, I still feel that there's still so much I would love to talk to him about. But, you know, I've, I've found different ways of communication with him in my writing and in my meditation. So it sounds to me like once you got to the U.S., there was a whole lot of change in how you felt about your family. Can you talk a little bit about what that transition going from Kenya to the U.S. so fast, so quickly after your father's death and coming here thinking that it was kind of like the the dream, right? The American dream of this is the wonderful place where everything's going to be okay. What you discovered once you landed here and were met with this non-acceptance from your family, the, the whole thing with how come you gained so much weight and just the non-acceptance there. What else was going on as you came here and tried to start a new life really kind of in a space of wishing that you hadn't even left Kenya. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I came here, like I thought that, of course, everything is going to be great and better and I'm starting a new life and, and this, that and the other. And it was just not not what I expected. And it wasn't as great as people say it is. And I think mainly that's just because of how I was not accepted by people here or judged, really. And it wasn't until, you know, I started college. And we came here in July of 1998. And I didn't start college until January. So those first six months were, you know, really, really difficult to process and be here and, you know, just trying to survive within myself. I felt very, very lost and unseen. And unheard and overlooked and not valued or not important looking back the moment that I joined college you know everything changed I'm a very very social person and I love people and I make friends easily I feel like I am an introvert at heart but nobody would really know that because I really do like my my own space but in a social setting nobody would see me as an introvert so you know Growing up, I grew up in a very reserved upbringing. And being the youngest child, everything was always kind of done for me. So I was very spoiled in that sense and kind of enabled. Like my chores were always done. And, you know, because I was youngest, sometimes my sisters, they did all my homework for me. And I was never really given skills or taught to live out there in the real world. Like here, 
by the time you're 18, you you might even have had two jobs. You've learned how to drive, you know, you've traveled somewhere because of school and you've become independent. Like over there, I was very, very sheltered. And at that time, when we came from Kenya, you don't learn driving until you're 21. So when I came at 18, I, I didn't know how to drive or like read maps or, you know, just everyday normal things. And when we came here and I had to start college, my mom had to go back to Kenya because my sister in Kenya was having her first child. And my sister, who I came here with, she had to go to England to get her work visa. So the day that I was starting college, there was no one here. So my sister, like she helped me get enrolled and all that stuff. And then I was living with my cousin. And on the first year of college, my cousin dropped me off at college and he went to work. And I went to college and I was so lost. I had no idea to follow the map that says you are here and this is where your class is. And it was freezing and it, it was like January 19th or something like that. And I walked up the steps to the college. There were so many people running around. And like I looked at the, the map of you were here and I didn't know like what to do from there. I didn't know who to talk what to ask, where my class was, or what to do. So I just sat on the steps, and I cried the whole day until my cousin came to pick me up at the end of the day. Where, like that was my first day. At, where did at you college. go? Where did you go to school? I went to Kasamas River College here in, in Sacramento. That was my first college that I went to. And then the next day, I I don't know what happened. I mastered some courage and I went to, to, the, to the administration office and I tried to find some instructions and then I was led to my class and it went okay. But that first day was just like, I still remember that first day. And then I started to make friends and I made this amazing friend. My friends in Kenya were something that I really, really valued. I had like four best friends there that I left back that, you know, that was one of the biggest things that I was sad about leaving is my friends because I had some really good friends there. And when I came here, I was just like, oh, my God, how am I going to make new friends? But I made a best friend here in college. Her name is Katera, and we're still friends today after like 22 years. And if it wasn't for her, I would not have gotten through my college life because she taught me everything about college. She, you know, invited me into her home. She introduced me to so many of her friends. And she's like another sister to me. And we've we've gone through our own ups and down journey together. But if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have loved or survived college or known how to take the next steps in my my life in college. And I just I'm so grateful for her and um you know, she's one of those angels that was sent to me when I when I needed an angel. So after I was in Sacramento uh, in Kasamas River College, I went there for about two and a half years, and then I transferred to Sac State. I did a degree in graphic design and photography, so I got a double major. And again, at this time, like I was telling you, I was just really, really existing. I wasn't really living life. I was, my main goal in life was, by, by now, my sister that had moved here with us, uh, she had already gotten married and moved to LA. And so it was just my mom and I, and I was 28, 26 at the time, or 25 at the time. My sister moved to LA, I was going to college here. My mom and I 
were living in a one bedroom apartment in my 20s, which was very, very difficult. Although I love my mom to death, I feel like those are the years where I really would have needed my privacy and my time to grow and be myself. But I had to share the space with her. And, you know, what's expected of me as an Indian daughter is to, like, go to school, make the money, take care of your parents. Like, that's that's how life goes. And so once, you know, I started, once my sister moved away, I was like, okay, now I have to, you know, be the bread earner. I have to go to college and do all these things so I can then take care of my mom and buy her a home and, you know, do all that. So I went to college. This was like the real, I mean, university. This was the really the most like kind of difficult time, but I didn't really see it. I see it as difficult now, but when I was in it, it didn't seem that hard because I was just doing it on autopilot. So I used to eat one large meal a day when I came home. I was doing a double major. And, you know, when you're doing a double major in art, it's very time consuming because we have to physically make all our projects. I only got maybe two to three hours of sleep a night because I had to, and I did photography when it was all darkroom based. It was not digital. So I had to go and take the time to develop. And all my graphic design projects, a lot of them were not digital. They were like done by hand. So it took a lot of time. And the perfectionist that I am, Sometimes I had to do those projects over again in the middle of the night because it wasn't okay for my own critical standards. So I made myself crazy in that sense. So having just one meal a day, not sleeping, and you know, just living like really on autopilot, I gained most of my weight during this time when I was in college, also due to stress. So I reached about 350 pounds at this time in my life. And you know, when I look back, I feel like, how was I able to carry myself, all my art equipment, and my photography equipment, from the parking lot to my classes every single day back and forth, along with my own 350 pounds? I have no idea how I did that. I have no idea how I functioned in the world with that weight on me. Like, you know... Today, when I look back, I just, like, I I feel pride for that person because she went through all that. She she did it, you know, as hard as it was. And even, even here in college, I, I made a lot of friends. I was very social. Like, I was very loved and, you know, everybody loved me. It's, you know, just my ability to connect with people is, is this gift that I have. So I appreciate all the friends that I have. And that was great. And, you know... Although I, in my own self, like on my own judgment and critical standards, feel like everybody would not see me and for me or they would judge me, like I am my biggest judge. Like a lot of people who love me would not even see my weight. They just, they just love me. And this is actually goes to one of my teachers who inspired me in my photography. I, I have to talk about that. His name is Jim West. I met him in Kasamnes River College. And the only reason that I am interested in photography is because I took one of his classes. And it was a prerequisite to my graphic design program. And the moment I took his class and his love and passion for photography just made me like 
have this love and passion for it myself. Like the first day that I developed print in the dark room, I just felt some magic within me happen. And I have this beautiful, beautiful, amazing friendship with him. And he's still my mentor and he's still always there to help me in every way that I need in life. And he's seen me grow and grow through the different processes in life. And he's always told me, I never see your weight. I just see you. And I always only see my weight. I don't see me. Or that's how it's been in the past. So I graduated college and I still surprising how I did that. I don't know. <laughs> Especially for a kid who was always told, you're not good in school. You're never going to make it. Why aren't you intelligent? You know, I, I, I graduated at, at a really good GPA and one of the top at my class. So I'm very, very proud of that today. What year was that? What year was that? Um, I graduated in 2006, spring of 2006, with a degree in graphic design and photography. And at that time, graphic design was not very well known in the Sacramento area. So it was very hard to get a job. I also feel that when you're 350 pounds, it's very hard for you to get a job anywhere. So my main skill was my people skill. So I applied for a job at Apple. And it was very weird how I got that job. It was a job for an iPhone agent. And what this job was, was that it was supposed to be the next level in customer service where we call people who buy the iPhone to walk them through how to set it up because the iPhone was just coming out. And from 4,000 people, 118 were hired. And I was one of those 118, which was a, an amazing privilege. I was actually working a job in Roseville at this time, like a temporary job. And I applied for this job online for Apple. And, you know, I just decided that day I'm not even going to go to the interview but I happened to miss my exit and I exited right on Laguna where the Apple office is. And it was, my interview was at four o'clock and I exited there at like 3.50. So I said, you know, I'm right here. I might as well just go. I went, I gave the interview and they offered me the job on the spot. So I accepted the job. And it was a perfect job for me to get, to be able to buy my mom the house that she wanted and to fulfill my duties as as her daughter and making sure she's taken care of. And and my main goal was to make sure that my mom doesn't have to work and I can provide for her, although she still works today, which is a great thing for her. But um, this was a great job with benefits and everything I needed to do what I was supposed to do and fulfill what my duties were to fulfill as an Indian Muslim daughter. As I worked this job, it was really, really amazing. The first few years, I made a lot of great friends. It's an amazing company to work for. But being the creative individual that I am, I was stuck in a cube. And my soul was dying because I didn't have time to create. By the time I went home, after like eight hours of talking to customers and helping them through technical issues over the phone, like every cell of yours is depleted and there's nothing that you don't have time to do anything creatively after that. So I, you know, put a hold on all my creative like dreams to do what I had to do. So what you have described as you've been sharing your story is I'm, I'm sitting here a little bit shaken, a little bit tearful and also smiling like crazy. So 
I'm feeling a lot of strange things in combination right now because what you have described is a childhood where your innocence was taken at a very young age and where the value that you had was a value, a sexual value that really wasn't appropriate for you at that age and the isolation that that brought because you couldn't talk about it and you didn't even know that it was wrong. So a whole twisted, painful situation as a child where love was entangled up with abuse and isolation and pain and your journey through trying to manage that pain all by yourself through the self-harming and through eating and all of that through to the loss of your father, which I mean, I lost my father before I lost my mother and I was fortunate because I was an adult at that point. I had had many years with him. He got to meet his grandchildren, had had a full life, totally different situation for you. And on the heels of that, this massive move to a completely different country where you wanted to start again. And the themes of isolation and of disconnection and of having massive pain and massive challenges to try to deal with and really only ending up being able to look to yourself to find a way to cope is just it's such a strong theme and yet this is why I wanted to bring you on the podcast because over and over and over and over again even though you felt like you didn't know what you were doing and you felt lost and unsupported and isolated you found what you needed to carry on And I find that incredibly inspiring to just to realize that there's so many different things that can happen that could just really level you and keep you from even wanting to live. And yet there's a way through it and you found those ways one by one by one. So I just want to I just want to say thank you for sharing that whole story of how you came to be here, having gone through all of that. And I know that that's not all of the story. (laughs) So I want to dig in a little bit into two things. One is your health, clearly physical health and emotional, spiritual health have been things that you have worked on over the years, because I know you're not in the same place now. (laughs) So I I would love to have you share like What has been the physical journey? Because you tried all the dieting and things and you had people giving you stuff and telling you what's wrong with you for weighing so much. Like, how did you deal with the with the fitness, the health and fitness aspect of it? Number one. And then number two, I guess I have three questions. So the health and fitness journey, then the sort of inner emotional journey. How did you get to be to such a place now where you can you can see your way through and you can help other people get through their trauma and pain. And then three, this professional development, because like you, I I went into high tech and realized, I mean, it was lucrative and it was interesting and fun. And ultimately it wasn't my thing. So I would love to hear how that unfolded because that's a, that's a cool story too. So you've got three, three questions. Take your pick. You want to start with the fitness journey? Yes, I'll start with that. So when I worked at Apple, they have, you know, it's a, it's an amazing company to work for and they have a lot of resources. And I was at about 350 pounds when I was, when I was at Apple 
And I had kind of started working on myself then because, you know, when I was looking for a job, like I was online and trying to online date and I met some person online at that time in England and I felt like, oh, I should probably start taking care of my body if I want to get married and this and that. And I started working out then and um, I lost a, a significant amount of weight, like really fast. But then once that relationship didn't work out, I went back to my old habits because obviously I'm not, I was not at a point where I'm like, I need to do this for myself, not for anyone else outside and, and not for anyone else outside of me. But I always did it for, at that time when I started, I was doing it for outside reasons. So when I was at Apple, you know, the, the seed had already been planted in my mind that I have to take care of my health and I have to lose weight at some point. So at that time I met, I, there was a, there was a class for weight loss. And I went to this weight loss class and there was a friend of mine there who attended the class there. And then I saw her a few months later and she had lost a significant amount of weight. And so I asked her like what she was doing. And she said that, you know, I have a personal trainer. So I told her, can you please connect me with her? And she's like, yeah, sure. And so she connected me with this personal trainer. And this person is the reason I am here today. She is part of every story of mine. She is one of my biggest inspirations. She is my hero in so many ways. And she taught me things that I would have never learned on my own. She taught me how to say no, that I had to put myself before anybody else in my journey, that I had to learn to be comfortable in my own skin, that I had to learn to do it for me, and that my dreams, no matter how big or small they were, were valid. And she taught me to dream my biggest dreams, even if they were most impossible. Just just to dream them and that anything that I dream of is attainable. And the one thing that she taught me is that giving up, this is the biggest thing that she taught me that I have never let go of and I will never let go of. And if she hears this podcast, I want her to know that I have not given up because of her and she will probably hear it. So Tots, this is you. I'm sure you know that. I have not given up because of her and I will never give up on anything that I want because that is the one thing that the biggest thing that she has taught me that I will never let go of. So when I started working with her, my relationships with my family and people around me started to change because I've started putting myself first and I was no longer sacrificing myself for people. And no longer doing things that I didn't want to do because I was told you should and you have to. So that really changed my dynamic of how I saw myself and how people saw me. And, you know, Tots, uh, she goes by Tots. Her name is Lorraine, but she goes by Tots. She used to come to my house at 4.30 in the morning to train me from her house, which is like 25 minutes away in the winter. If somebody is so loving and dedicated to me to change, how am I not going to want to do that for myself? Like she loved me so much unconditionally that she wanted it for me more than I wanted it for myself. And she always told me, do it for you, do it for you. But that was a really hard concept for me to get because I didn't really know what doing it for you really means. And for me, 
one of my main things was to seek validation from outside. And I felt that if I worked harder and she told me I'm doing a good job, that was enough for me to like keep going. Not that I was doing it for me, but I wanted to hear that you were doing a good job part. So she introduced me to like training for marathons. She introduced me to boxing. She introduced me to like all these things that really made me feel that no matter what size I am, I can still be an athlete and I can still be healthy and I can still go out there and do everything that I that a person of my weight and my culture and my stereotype would be expected not to be doing those things. So I was 280 pounds and I ran a marathon. I ran a half, half a marathon. And I came sixth in my age group at 280 pounds. That's almost like unheard of, you know, but during this whole time, even though she was telling me do it for you, there was that part of me that hadn't completely accepted my body or was loving myself because self-love is the hardest thing that comes by. I was still working out really hard, not seeing that there's a journey to the process. I just wanted to get the weight off. At any cost, no matter how, I just wanted to get the weight off. And I was very focused on that number and very stressed about that number. I also have an endocrine disorder called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And if you have it, you gain massive amounts of weight. And if you lose weight, it can reverse itself. But at the same time, if you have it, it's very difficult to lose the weight. So it's this vicious cycle that is very hard to get around. So I worked with her and, you know, I used to do like extreme dieting and purging. And I used to drink like six or seven cups of diet tea a day, which would then make me really sick for the next five or six days. And then after I ate something that I thought was not good to eat, I would do the same thing all over again. So I was at a point where I was doing the Atkins diet and I got really bad gallstone pain for about a year and they couldn't figure out what it was finally after a year I had surgery but at this point I still didn't think that I was harming my body and I always used to tell my trainer you know I want to lose weight fast I want to lose weight fast and that time the biggest loser was a really big fad so I was watching the biggest loser one day and they did six hours of cardio in that. So I told her I want to do six hours of cardio. And she's like, okay, you want to do six hours of cardio? Go ahead and do six hours of cardio. So one day I did six hours of cardio. I did like the elliptical, swimming, walking, the bike, and like another hour of walking and another hour on the elliptical or some crazy thing like that. I was so sick for a week after that. I had bruises everywhere. I had blisters everywhere. My entire body hurt. I couldn't move. And that stalled me. That like put me back in my journey. So the desperation and the impatience I had to get just to the end goal just always kept putting me back because I was so desperate. And I was holding on to this thing that wasn't coming from within me. So then, you know, I got over the gallbladder surgery and, you know, I was doing well and working out every day, but still really just like unhappy that I'm not getting to my goal. And because of working at Apple, I then developed a nerve injury in my right arm. 
it was due to repetitive strain. And being an artist and a creator, I'm right-handed. And this is my sole purpose is to create. And my nerve injury was so bad in my right arm that I literally could not lift a finger in that arm. There was no blood going flowing to my elbow. From the part of the elbow down, I couldn't move my arm. And I went to physical therapy. I couldn't work out properly because I couldn't use that right arm. So I had to do like, you know, just walking and stuff like that. I couldn't lift or box. So I, you know, that was a whole year of reflection for me. And I realized that I'm not serving my sole purpose by being able to paint and create because if I'm not able to paint and create, it's pretty much the death of my spirit. Although I was working at Apple and I was making the money and bought the house from my mom and I had the benefits, my soul was dying because I was stuck in a cube and a creative person is never meant to, to be in, that, in those three walls. So after, you know, I recovered from my nerve injury, which I had to go through surgery for, I realized I had a lot of appreciation. I was starting to, at this point, have appreciation for my body. And it wasn't complete self-love yet, and I was still very critical of my physical self. But, you know, I was starting to say that, okay, this, this nerve pain came because it's teaching me that you have to go back to creating because just like the thought of having that option of not being there was devastating for me. So it sounds to me as though by this point, you had started to conquer and release some of those beliefs that were developed in your early days. You had mentioned prioritizing like giving everything of yourself in order to take care of everybody else and make everybody else like you and be valued that way. You know, that started in childhood at school and then continued all the way through to college and, and even as, as you were starting the career of just like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this all. And number one in that was, okay, now my job is to provide a place and a home and support for my mother as you know, the one remaining daughter who's not married and who's still living here at home, this is my responsibility. And you knocked out out of the park with your job at Apple. You have developed all those resources, got the home. Okay, I'm taking care of mom. And then started to work on, okay, physical being. What can I do here? What do I need to do? And I totally relate to the things that you were talking about, about not getting that you needed to do it for yourself, because I have been through that exact journey myself. And I'm sure I'm not mm-hmm. alone, <laughs> but all, I mean, so much progress through such major, major barriers. And so then this nerve injury comes up after you've made all of this progress in all these other areas and it smacks you upside the head and says, okay, girl, now you know that this has to be all about you now because you've done the let your life be shaped by everybody around you thing for 20 plus years. Now you got to look, like, who's Nafsheen? What's Nafsheen's life supposed to be about? And I just, I love that with all of the stuff that was going on and all of the things that there were to work through, 
like one by one by one by one listening to your story. It's like, oh, she knocked that one off. Oh my gosh, like that one too. Oh, and it's just like dominoes falling. All of these impediments and all of these wounds and all of these boundary injuries and all of these things that were keeping you from being the wonderful nafshin that you are, like one by one by one, you knocked them over and you dealt with them. So I just wanted to tell you that's like what I'm hearing in your story. And I can't wait to hear the next ones fall because I know there's some more dominoes coming. Yes, absolutely. So you're right. You know, it's one thing at a time that I was I was letting go of or, you know, conquering. And, you know, this was the first step in bringing awareness to my body and, and the importance of how because I, I saw it so negatively and I judged it so negatively. And I was always angry at people on the outside for judging it, but I was the one judging it the most or not taking care of it or loving it. So like it started to bring awareness that I have to take care of myself and my arm. And I healed from that. I healed from the surgery. I went through my physical therapy and then I was like, okay, now I'm back on the wagon and I'm back at working out and I did my first marathon <laughs> with a sling <laughs> because it was it was scheduled my first half marathon. I should keep saying half marathon because I haven't done a full marathon yet. My surgery was in March for my arm and my marathon, my half marathon was scheduled was in May. So I hadn't completely recovered from it. So I had to do the whole half marathon in a sling because I was not going to not do it. There was no way I was going to not do it. And I told my surgeon, I said, am I going to be able to do this race? Because I've trained for it and I'm not going to not do it. She's like, you can do it. You, you can't just, you have to do it in a sling. And walk running 13 miles in a sling is really hard. But again, I'm very proud of myself that I did it. And this is also the, the, the marathon that I was sixth in my, in my age range and carrying 280 pounds at that time. That's amazing. So thank you. <laughs> As I look back, it's just, you know, it makes me like, I feel like I wouldn't be able to do that today, even though I, I'm, I'm at a completely different place and lighter and maybe healthier and fitter. I'm like, I can't do that today. But I did that then. So then I started, you know, after after healing from the, uh, my arm, I started to get back into my process and I started learning how to ride a bike which I still haven't learned because I am still terrified of falling and you know after I, I settled into being healed and recovered and started working out again and appreciating my body the obsession of losing weight started all over again and I'm like when is this going to go when is this going to go when am I going to get to my goal when is this going to go so between my surgery my arm surgery and this next phase, a year had passed and I was starting to get impatient again and again. And I was met with a car accident at this time. I got rear-ended really bad and it hurt my neck and it hurt my back and it re-triggered my nerve injury all over again. And, you know, for all those listening, if you have never experienced nerve pain, I hope that you never do because it's the most debilitating pain anyone can ever go through. It's your nerve pain just makes everything burn and hurt and it burns all through the day and it burns all through the night and there's nothing that you can do to make it feel better until it just goes away. 
So when that pain started again, I I just become silent. I don't talk to anybody. I don't eat. I don't sleep. I just am completely quiet because I don't know how to deal with this or process it. So the fact that I had that car accident and it re-triggered all my injury again because I was impatient, it stalled me back in my journey. It stalled me back and I was like, okay, now I have I I I was in a process, I was in the schedule of working out, I was on my way to losing weight, and now I'm in pain again in all these areas and I have to stop. So I had to stop again because I was in pain for about eight months. I had to just do physical therapy and all that stuff. And then once I healed, I went back to my to my working out. And all these little experiences, like I feel like everything that we go through in life that is hurt us emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, they're all meant to be there to bring us back to a state of loving ourselves. But we don't know that. <laughs> it's really hard to learn that. So again, once I healed from my accident, I got back into working out. I was doing really well, you know. And then I had lost about 20 or 30 pounds and I was at like 260. And I was just still feeling very frustrated. And every time I looked into the mirror, I was like, man, when, when, when is this body going to get to where it needs to be? Like when? And this was at the end of 2015. And I had a regular gynecology appointment scheduled. And they told me that they, just for safety's sake, they wanted to do like a biopsy. And I was like, what does that mean? And so they had to take some of the lining off my uterus and test it. And they tested it and it came out positive for uterine cancer or endometrial cancer. So this was the moment of truth and the moment of reflection and the moment when everything made sense and came crashing down upon me. I was sitting in my bed and I heard this loud cry, this pleading, this voice of asking for freedom. It was my body just telling me to please stop that, that it was my body telling me to please stop that she's had enough and she needs my love and that I needed to just let go of everything that I was doing to harm my body in every way possible. And at this moment that I was sitting in my bed, I was so grateful for the basic functions of my body to be able to see, hear, touch, walk, that, you know, I had all functioning parts of my body. I didn't care whether I had fat or cellulite or weight or whatever it was. At that moment, I was completely grateful for every cell of my body that I had that was mine. And this was, you know, the, the changing moment in my life. So I went through some therapy for six months and my cancer was cleared and then after another six months I was diagnosed again and the cancer had returned so they decided that the best thing to do was to have a hysterectomy and during this time when I was diagnosed the second time I had six weeks before 
they were going to do my surgery. And they didn't know at this time what stage my cancer was at. They didn't know if it was at stage one or four or, and they would only know when they do the surgery, whether I, it had spread outside my uterus, whether I would need chemo and radiation. They wouldn't know. So I had six months is a really long time to wait to figure out, to know how much time you have in life, whether it's a large amount of time or short amount of time, you know, because it's that time period. And, you know, for two weeks out of those six weeks, I completely made myself sick. I cried every day because I thought, you know, this could be this could be the end of my life. And I haven't done anything. I have nothing to show off my life. I haven't accomplished anything. I haven't positively affected any human being's life. I haven't changed the world in any way. I haven't lived my purpose. Like, I haven't done anything. And then after the first two weeks of being really sad and sick, I told myself, like, let's say I only have four more weeks left, okay? Is this how I want to go out? And I'm like, no, I don't. And at that moment, you know, I had like this really profound moment or something that came from up above that told me, first of all, you're going to be completely fine. This is here to better you. Like all the other injuries that you've had in the past were there to better you. Because even after my nerve injury, I felt so much better. And this is going to better you. And when you survive from this, you're going to use your art to make a difference to the world. And then I just put my hand on my womb and I told myself that, you know, it's going to be fine. And I affirmed it every single day. And I have the worst anxiety and panic attacks ever, also stemming from childhood issues. And when my sister was here for my surgery, she asked me, you know, why are you so, how are you so calm? I told her, you know, I'm going to be completely fine. Like, this is going to be okay. Although I was terrified. And when I woke up from my anesthesia after the surgery, the first question I asked her is, do I have cancer everywhere? And she's like, no, you're fine. It was all contained inside. And, you know, you didn't have to, you didn't have to worry about the future or anything. You don't have to go to through chemo or radiation. And, you know, I'm like, good, because there was an inner knowing inside me that already knew that that was going to happen, although it's terrifying. But there was something somewhere at some point that told me, you are okay, and this is going to be for the better. Although it was as scary as anyone who is diagnosed with cancer can imagine. But I, I, I had this part of me that was just an affirmation from within. So... Once I healed from my cancer surgery, you know, recovered from the surgery, I realized that, you know, I had issues with food and I had to resolve my issues with food. So I went to a class in Kaiser about eating disorders. And this was another realization of a very enlightening moment for me. So I was attending this class and I learned in this class from this lady doing a TED talk. I forget her name, but she was this very amazing, powerful African-American woman doing a TED talk. And we were watching it in this class. And she said, women who go through trauma in childhood, whether it's sexual, emotional, mental, physical, they suffer through eating disorders. They suffer through heart disease and they suffer through cancer in their reproductive organs and the moment I heard this 
in that class, I started to sob. I cried and I cried and I cried because by this time, I had already give, forgiven my molesters. I had already gone through therapy. I had already written letters to them saying that I forgive you. And, and these were letters that I just wrote and I didn't send them because they had already both died. So I had to do this healing on my own. And I had already written letters to them and I had forgiven them for everything, said everything I wanted to say, and I had let it go out of my system. But when I learned this, everything came back because, you know, all I ever wanted was to have a child. And what they did to me and the stress that they caused my body made it so I carried cancer. So I, so that ability for me to have a child was taken away from me. And this brought back all the anger and the hurt and the emotions and all the hate towards them again. But I had to overcome that somehow. And so, like, as I was, you know, learning this, I, at this time, I also found that I really just wanted a support group so I could talk about what molestation has done to me. And instead, I found a 12-step program for food addiction. So I joined that, which is known as FA. I joined that, and that really helped me. At this time, I was also starting to really try to work my business and attend networking events. And at one of these events, I met a wonderful lady named Katerina, and she told me that I'm going to be a speaker. And I never, being so self-conscious of my body, being an Indian woman who's taught never to speak her mind, I'm like, I'm never going to be a speaker. And she's like, yeah, you're going to be a speaker. So I was like, okay, whatever. And her, my energy re really resonated with her. So I attended all the events that she she put forth. And I went to one of her events and I started learning her program. And I was invited to speak at an event and share my story. And this was the first time that I publicly shared my story in a group of 30 women and said everything that I want to say in my true authentic self. And the biggest gift for me from that day was that it made an effect, it made a difference to every woman in that room. And that's when I realized that my purpose is to share my story. I realized that every single hardship I have been through in life is so I can use it to help another person. And if that is the reason I've gone through all this, then it's all completely worth it. If I can help somebody else through my pain, then I'm ready to endure that pain because our purpose in life is to enhance human experience through our own human experience. And today, I don't, I don't see that anything that happened to me was negative. Do I wish that I could have a child? Yes, because sometimes I feel like that's one of the reasons that holds me back from finding my right person because, you know, most people want to start a family and I'm not able to provide that at this point. But um, that is my reality. And I had to go through that for a certain reason. Maybe my purpose is to give love and adopt a child who has doesn't have the means or is not going to be able to ever have a parent out there. Maybe we're two broken pieces meant to be together in that way. But I don't have 
any kind of hate against anyone. I don't have any kind of regret for anything that I've been through. I don't have the why me attitude anymore. I just am grateful for everything that I've been through because it has made me and given me this incredible strength that I would have never had otherwise to help women, to help even men who have been through molestation. I feel like it's so much harder for them, you know, because they're supposed to be like this pillar of like strength and power and protection. And I I want my message to help them as well, that it's okay that this happened. And I'm not, I'm not what happened to me. I'm what I become or choose to become because of what happened to me. I'm like an amazing result of the pain that I have gone through. There's this, there's this great quote that I really, really resonate with. And it's, it goes like this. Um, sometimes we're, when we're in a dark place and we feel like we have been buried, we have actually been planted. And I feel like I'm constantly, be, through every pain that I'm going through, I'm constantly being planted into blooming into something bigger and better for the service of humanity. So I remember meeting you at one of Katerina's events. And I remember being there. I spoke at the same event that you spoke at three years ago, maybe. It was at the September 2017, I think. There we go. Yeah. Two, so two and a bit years ago. I remember yeah. being in that room and I remember you saying, I'm not a speaker. I'm not a speaker. And then when you stepped up to the podium and started to talk, the whole room went absolutely silent and everybody was just leaning forward and engaged and connected with you. And I remember when you finished, I was like, what do you mean you're not a speaker? Holy cow. And so I just want to say I am so pleased that I got to be there at the beginning because it is so clear that this is what you're supposed to be doing. And even though you didn't share like the entire story at that event, because it was much <laughs> shorter talk, it was so powerful and everybody in the room was touched and moved and walked away with something that was precious. So I just want to throw that out there because that's why we've stayed connected. And that's why I said, I have to get you on my podcast. I have to get you on my podcast was because of that. Yeah. And it's so amazing that you were there and I, I feel like you're a part of my journey and you're going to be there through the rest of it. So I'm really grateful for that. Absolutely. Well, I would love yeah. for you to talk a little bit about where you are now with your health and your weight and everything. And then I want to know what exactly are you doing now with your photography and your painting and how you work with women? So where I am with my health and journey now, I have lost 140 pounds and that is due to complete self-love, complete surrender and acceptance of who I am, where I am and my body. Because when you do something from a state of hate, it never works. When you do it from a state of love, it works, which is what I have 
had happened. So for anyone out there who listens to this, who's trying to lose weight, do it because you love yourself and you deserve to do everything that you want to do in a physical, healthy body, not because you hate it and you want to get to the end for some specific reason. What are some of the things that you've done? So, well, for losing weight, of course, I, I eat healthy and I weigh and measure everything I eat. I was part of Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous for a while, which was very, very helpful. It helped me address my addiction issues. It helped me with knowing why I eat when I eat. It helped me with going back to childhood and, you know, when those triggers happen, why I want to eat. But I didn't want to continue being there because I didn't want to program my mind and wake up and say that I'm an addict every day because I can up level from that and function in the world as a normal human being and not call myself an addict every day and just be aware of what I'm putting in my mouth, when I'm putting it in my mouth and how much of it that I'm putting in my mouth. So I came to that awareness and I didn't want to leave live in a state of fear. Sometimes when we're... When we see something working off for us in a certain way, we're afraid to leave because we are afraid to go back to being what we were being. But that's, to me, I feel is a crutch and I don't want to live life with a crutch anymore. I can just be free and fully accept myself and I have all the tools that I need to be successful. So I'm going to work on my own lessons and my tools to do that. Also, speaking is very, very freeing for me because when I learned in that class that what the molesters had done had affected my body and so much stress, all I wanted to do was really face them and tell them, this is what you've done to me. But because they had died, I couldn't say anything to them. So in speaking and sharing my story with people is the most liberating thing that I can do. And was I able to face them today? I would say, this is what you gave me and this is what I'm doing with it to help other people heal. Um, for me, I feel that that's a win. And in, in some weird way, I could even show gratitude for the experience that they gave me. Most people wouldn't want to do that, but there is a part of me that feels gratitude towards that because, you know, it's made me, a lot of people would be bitter but it's made me just be more humble and it's made me want to love more and give more to the world because I feel so much empathy for people going through pain that I can relate to that. And it just makes me love more and give more love to the world because I feel we are born as an original pure state of love and our purpose is to continue doing that to the world. It's just that lifelong experiences take us away from that true purpose. So when I was in the last four weeks before I had my surgery and I was sitting in bed and telling myself that I have to make a difference to the world with my art, I thought to myself, you know, there's so many incredible stories of people who have overcome adversity and who have overcome it in a positive way, thinking that that was the best thing that happened to them. I want to be able to tell these stories, you know, even even my own. Like, I don't think that anything negative happened to me was a negative thing. I don't think that when things are falling apart, they're falling apart. Things are always falling together, even though it seems like they're falling apart. So I decided to transform adversity into art. And what I do with that is 
I would interview a person who wants to tell their story, whatever part of story, whatever part of their story that they want to tell, whether it's detailed or in depth or about anything difficult that they've overcome from cancer, molestation, abusive marriage, any kind of hardship, just anything that they've overcome. And I would interview them and I would write their story. I would photograph it and still images. So throughout their story, if they want to pick the parts that they want to highlight and want to be photographed to tell the story, I would come up with a creative process on how to actually visualize, you know, the amount of images it would take with those particular instances in their story and photograph them in still images. I do the makeup, the setting, everything. Then I make a video of their entire story. And when they're in their power image, I make a painting of that image to celebrate the piece of art that they are and how their adversity has brought them to that being that piece of incredible art. Because all our scars and our wounding are are pieces of art on us that we use to move forward in life and to help other people with that wounding. And what I aspire to do with all these stories is to put them in a book together. And my ultimate goal is to have an exhibit where I have the person, the story, their images. And so they get a validation of their struggle. We often really celebrate our victory at the end of everything we've gone through but I want to celebrate the pain because that pain is such a beautiful process and we should never want to not feel pain we should take that pain and feel it and embrace it and love every ounce of the pain that comes to us because it is because pain is power and it will take us to the next level of our life in a way that we have never known it to take us so that is what I am doing today. I am also in the process of developing a coaching program for women to accept themselves, love themselves, bring themselves back to a place of unconditional love for themselves and show up better in the world for themselves and their loved ones. And I have a plethora of like exercises and tools and daily habits that I have gone through myself to keep bringing back myself to this place whenever I fall out of it and just to really like love ourselves on a cellular level like we all need that so much so I feel like my mission in life is to just heal people through my pain and enhance human experience through my struggles and I'm so gifted and so blessed that I had to go through everything that I had to go through to serve humanity. Wow. Well, I, I just have a big full body yes to all of that. And I am just reflecting back on that moment in the class where you realized that your body actually was still holding on to the, the trauma, even though mentally you had processed through it all and reached forgiveness at that level. You know, your body was still holding on to it and, and had to go through one more process to resolve it. And I think that, well, I really see very clearly the connection between the artistic creative work that you're talking about and the coaching program that you're talking about, because that addresses both pieces. So I'm curious, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about what the process is like for somebody who comes to you to work with you through like 
with their story? How much time does it take? And kind of what do, what's a typical experience for a woman who comes to you to do that? Okay, so the typical experience would be, first of all, I would want to meet her one-on-one in person just so we can get to know each other. I can feel into her energy. She can feel into my energy if we're going to be a good working relationship with one another. It's just really required that the person be just really open, open to sharing themselves and also open to healing through the process. This could take anywhere from six to eight weeks if we are in complete collaboration together and constantly working. And so there's four components five components to this. There's one is the interview where I just sit and write down our interview and listen to all her story that she wants to share, whatever part of it she wants to share. Then I go into a place where I would take just like bullet points of the important parts of the story, which helps me make the, which helps me formulate the images in my mind of what I want to photograph. Then I go, we go to the photography process and this normally takes between like five to six like photo sessions, depending on how elaborately that it wants to be shot. And depending on the story, if I have one scene with different images, I could, you know, shoot a lot of them in one day. Or if we need to do a shoot that, you know, in the story where there's like travel and, you know, if there's like been abuse or if there if there needs to be extensive makeup done then you know it would take a longer time but it's anywhere between five i would say five to seven photo shoots then after the photo shoots i do the editing process and i compile a video together of the entire story the video can be with music and words that i write the story that would be seen or it can be with music in the background and the person who's in the story narrating it so they are they're speaking their story in the video. I have two different options that people can see from that. And then in the photo shoots, there's always also a shoot where the person has overcome everything that they've overcome and they're in their power stance. And that is the picture that I choose to make a painting of because that's what needs to be celebrated. And through this eight-week process, six to eight-week process is also where I take them through the coaching program So from the time that they start with me till the time that they end, they have not only transformed through the process of being photographed and their journey and loving themselves physically, but we're also growing and helping them together with the coaching program in the background on a weekly basis of all these things on how to address to themselves to to come to that space of unconditional love for themselves. And so they're going to be transformed on so many levels from, from, from the time that we start shooting, from the time of their interview, until they receive their painting. So that's the process. And they can choose to partake in all of it as one package, or they can choose to partake in four different parts of it. So they can choose to only do their interview and their photo shoot, so there's only a video. They can choose to do only their only the coaching if they only want the coaching and they don't want any pictures or anything like that, if that's just all they want. They can choose to only have their painting if they want to celebrate their painting. And I also give like each one of them like a book just with their pictures and their story, just so they can have one individual. But they're all eventually going to be part of a bigger book with everybody else's story. 
they can also just do the story individually if they want. So they can break it up in all these different pieces or, or have all five components together. And I'm just going to recap on the five components, which is the interview, the story, the photography, the coaching, and the painting, and the book. So I would put the, the interview and the story as one and, and the little book that they get. So there's five things that they get together. And they can all be split up one by one, or they can all be purchased together, or two can be purchased together, or three can be purchased together, wow. however they want to do it. What a powerful, powerful way to work together with another human being. And I think that your ability to connect with another human being with such empathy and love is what makes all of that work. So I I love that. I love that that's what you're doing. So Nafshin, family is clearly very important to you. And I'm wondering what role your family has played as you've gone through this whole experience and the process of creating a life afterwards. So yes, you're right. Family is definitely very, very important to me. And my family has mostly been very, very supportive. It's it's difficult when they're not able to completely understand your situation, but uh, two women in my life particularly have molded me to be the human that I am. So my mother, first of all, she is an incredibly resilient woman. She has gone through many, many different trials in her life and has always gone through them with silence and faith in knowing that everything happens the way it's supposed to happen and that we're always taken care of and always looked for. She has always taught me to never give up on anything that I want and that, you know, the Almighty is always with me and that I can dream any big dream and that everything is always happening for me, not to me. And she's suffered many, many years in silence in many different ways, but I have never, ever seen her complain. She's just gone through it with so much grace, and her faith is completely unwavering. That is my biggest inf- inspiration from her. No matter what she goes through, how big, small, difficult or not, her faith is unwavering in just the knowing that Everything is happening exactly how it should, and it's all for the good, and I'm always being taken care of. So she's my pillar of strength, and I'm so grateful that I've got to spend 22 years of my life in solitude with her. It's a complete gift and a blessing, and she's more than an angel in my life. And I don't tell her this enough, but like the admiration and pride I have for her is beyond any words that I could ever express to anybody. So she is one of those women in my life that I seek and see inspiration and power and strength on a daily basis. And the other woman being my incredible sister, Nehreen, she is the closest to me in age, although we have a seven-year gap between us. Ever since my father passed, she has taken his role in my life, and she's been my rock. If I was to say the love of my life, she is the love of my life. There is not a day that I could go without her. We have had our ups and downs, but like she's taught me how to drive. She taught me how to read a map. She taught me how to do my finances. She teaches me how to organize. She fills out all my forms for me that give me anxiety. She helped me, you know, with everything that had to do with college. And my dad's biggest dream for us all was as Muslim girls, we should all get an education. 
And after he passed, she made very well sure that I got an education, although she had to work hard hours and pay my international student fees, which was very expensive at the time. She made sure that I got an education. So my mom and my sister, without them, I would not be even quarter of the person I am. So I just want to give a really, really heartfelt gratitude for life to both of them. Wow, what an incredible pair of women to have in your life and in your family. And just hearing you talk about both of them just reinforces for me like where you have developed such incredible courage and strength in your own self. Because with two women like that in your life, how could you not? It's just, it's just amazing to hear what extraordinary women they are. And I'm sure that they are very proud of you and just love you to pieces. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing the story because it really does all come together. It's it's a difficult to listen to in a way because I, I just, I'm sure I'm not unique in this, but I, I just listen and I just think, how come one human being go through so much and endure so much and suffer so much and yet still come out of out of it all joyous and loving and up and able to uplift other people it is such an inspirational story now sheen and so genuine you know you mentioned authenticity and i think that was what really drew me to you in the first place was just I got such a sense of who you were because you were not hiding behind any of the fears or the oughtas or the shoulds or the things like that. By the time that you and I met, you were, you were really embracing you and have only really even continued to do that more since then. So anyway, you've just continued to open up and embrace even more who you are and the gifts that you actually have come to share with us. And I'm so grateful. I'm so glad that we met. And I'm so glad that you agreed to come on the podcast. Thank you. It's been such a beautiful gift for me. And you know, sometimes when I lose sight of who I am and why I'm here, and as I'm telling my story today, I just, it's really helped me to just see my gifts again and go out there in the world and know that I'm doing what I'm called to do. So thank you for giving me this opportunity, for trusting me, for creating an amazing safe space for me and just being the light that you are Cynthia I just know that for you I'm going to be a yes for anything anytime anywhere okay (laughs) oh thank you I appreciate that and it's definitely mutual well I have one question for you before we wrap it up because we've been talking for quite a while so are you ready for for my last question absolutely okay how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage Start by looking in the mirror. Look in the mirror, look into the eyes of that woman, and there is nobody else like her. There's nobody else who stands tall and does everything that she needs to do on a daily basis that she uniquely can do for herself. As women, we are born to love, we are born to nurture. And our first responsibility is to nurture and love ourselves. We cannot fully give that to anyone else until we give that to ourselves. And we have so much to love and nurture about ourselves. Like literally every cell of our being deserves that love and nurturing. 
And once we do that for ourselves, we show up so much better in the world for everybody else because we are, we know that we are connected to our true self and our true purpose, which is coming back to that space of unconditional love because that's how we are born. And if you think about a baby and a child, when you see a child, you only feel love for them and from them, especially when you hold them against your chest, their, their love radiates within us and we're all born like that. So why can't we go back to that state of being that way? Even if somebody hurts us or harms us and we just give love out instead of hate and resentment, that's just what comes back to us and it just makes us feel so much better. So my biggest way, and it might seem like the hardest or the easiest or maybe impossible or maybe insignificant, it may be all of those things, but just wake up, look at yourself in the mirror, see what you've done in your life, how you showed up for all those that you love. And that in itself will empower you to be, be the best version of yourself and give yourself the love you deserve. Oh my God, I love that. And I needed to hear that today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nafsheen. It has been absolutely wonderful to have you here with me today. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cynthia. It's been an honor and I love and appreciate you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I love and appreciate you too. Well, that is it for today's episode of the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.